This is Hannah Vanderhart, and I am with the poet Jessica Cuello. And Jessica and I are together in an Airbnb in um, New York. We're at Mount Shrimper, and we are just spending a few days together. We had a very relaxed um, plan where we were just going to read and write and talk, and genuinely, mostly, we have talked and it's just been wonderful to spend time with Jessica. I'm going to read her, Jessica's um, biography now from her website so you know a little bit more about who I'm speaking with. Jessica Cuello's manuscript, Liar, has been selected by Dorian Locks for the 2020 Barrows Street Book Prize, forthcoming in October 2021. Jessica is also the author of Pricking from Tiger Bark Press 2016, winner of the 2017 CNY Book Award, and Hunt from the Word Works 2017, winner of the 2016 Washington Prize. In addition, Coyo has published three draft books, My Father's Bargain, 2015, By, Far, By Fire, 2013, and Curie, 2011. Jessica was the recipient of the 2018 New Ohio Re Review Poetry Prize, the 2013 New Letters Poetry Prize, and the 2015 Salt and Stall Writing Fellowship. In 2014, Jessica was awarded the Decker Award from Hollins University for Outstanding Secondary Teaching. Jessica teaches French in Central New York and is a poetry editor for Tahoma Literary Review. And as a way of saying how Jessica and I have crossed paths, we've actually first met each other on Twitter, and then we met each other in person at the Frost Place. And we are in different workshops, but we have just really clicked and enjoy each other's work. And now we are staying together and just talking. And we just had this idea that we could get together and read a couple poems and see where the conversation takes us in terms of gender and femme bodies and care and thinking about our books and all the different ways books come into being. So now I'm going to ask Jessica if she would like to read us a poem from her forthcoming book, Liar. I'm going to read this poem I've never read aloud called Feeding Ritual. And I'm choosing this poem because Hannah and I had a, Hannah and I had a walk um, by the mountains and the reservoir, and it ended with us talking about how we both had mastitis and how I overfeed my children and wearing cabbage leaves on our breasts and <laughs> Hannah's nipple <laughs> that was torn away. And um, it made me think of this poem, which I've never read, about an androgynous Christ I saw in a Roman church. Feeding ritual. Write the instructions in a list. Rise, get dressed, turn his head, latch his lips. Trapped inside the breast is the holy lost, the untaught lesson, the milk won't stream. Milk is dammed against his mouth. I listen for a whisper, for the instinct. I listen, but no one. Once I saw a Roman Christ with beard and breasts. 
She was lifting up a stained glass hand, but I was late. It was before I was a girl mother, before I was swollen and could not feed. Stuck in glass, always on the verge of teaching. Can you hear the hand, the little sucking? Can you hear the breast, her sad blue rivulets? What you can't hear, you must list. That was amazing. It actually made me, it's funny how it touched on another conversation we had about lists. You know, the lists your mothers would give you. Oh, yeah. And thinking about <laughs> how, I mean, I think about how I've used lists to cope with, with empty space, with loneliness, and making lists to figure out how to be a person when I don't because this is a poem also about lost knowledge mm -hmm. and not having the knowledge of how to breastfeed because my breasts were like swollen and enormous and rock hard and writing a list of what I needed to do in yeah. the absence of other kinds of passed on knowledge. Yeah. No, this is so, I don't know, this is an amazing conversation because I know we talked a little bit about um, like you said, mastitis and problems nursing and, um, you know, what it's like to go to a lactation consultant, or at least how it was for me. Um, and I told you that I felt kind of almost insulted by the fact that a person who had never nursed before was able to help me so much with my nursing problems with my second child. And that they were able to just show me how to like, you know, they said like sit him up like he's at a bar and, and to hold my child upright. And, um, and it's, it's, I think it's just such an interesting question about like knowledge and where it comes from. And, you know, we think that it's always applied knowledge or it always has to be done. Um, and I don't know. I think, you know, like when you get into questions of, you know, epistemology and like where knowledge comes from and how we think about it, it's just really interesting with poetry too, because you know there are like instruction poems and there are list poems and um, yeah. But it's another art if breastfeeding is an art that you don't. I mean, I guess if you go to an MFA, you get instruction. But when I wrote my first few books, the only instruction was from books, which is just actually pretty good instruction. But I don't know how that replaces human beings reading your work and saying, look at this line. Mm. Or actually you're feeding your son too much and you're producing so much milk. Yeah. And how we need each other to share oral knowledge that we aren't getting. Well, that I haven't been getting, which I didn't grow up getting. Yeah. And so I would always go to books for how to do things and how to understand how to do things, yeah. which I think is where I ended up writing. It's so interesting because like when I talk to my students about revision and one of the things I always say first is have you read your piece out loud? Because reading out loud, like I will say, you know, you can fool your mind, but you can't really fool your body when you read it out loud and you trip up like, oh, pause there. Like what's going on there? And I don't know. There's something about like nursing. You think the bodily knowledge will just be there you think that you can just do the action and it but it's not like it's not as 
intuitive as you think like it's almost easier to read a written piece out loud and figure out what's wrong I mean obviously it's easier yeah I thought I thought the breastfeeding <laughs> knowledge would be there and it wasn't no but I also you know it's interesting about the out loud thing because I give that advice to my students mm. but I have a really hard time reading my work aloud even though I I respect the it's one of those things where I I, I respect too. it I know it's necessary but I have an issue with voice and voice for me is for my whole life has been internal like even this podcast is challenging to speak words aloud and so I think the voice that is spoken and the voice that is inside your head and how are they different from one on one another and what do they do differently yeah and um, it's hard for me to say my words aloud mm -hmm. and I want to <laughs> Yeah, we were we were talking about Maria Rakaiser today, and I brought up that quote about how she says that when you listen to a poem, the words are a shadow, the page is the shadow, and then when you read a poem, the sound is a shadow. Um, mm. And that's so. I think it's mm. really interesting that you bring up not reading aloud your work because a lot of times. I'll write when my children are occupied or away and I really enjoy the silence so much that I don't, I'm not reading my work out loud. Like to sit in silence and work is my favorite thing. And so like I will eventually read the poem out. Like I've never like sent out a poem or whatever without reading out loud. Like I believe I in reading it. Ooh. It's kind of wild. In a lot of this book, I've never read it. I, I shouldn't say this. No, I think you should. Public, because it's embarrassing. No. But it's because, you know, I had this small degree of self-selected mutism. Mm. And speech was hard for me. Even though I, I think naturally I like speaking. And speaking about the silence and the Muriel Rekheiser... So I've been reading Nightingale by Paisley Threkdahl. Mm -hmm. And in her center section, which is my favorite part of that book, and, you know, it deals with voice mm -hmm. and the, the poet's voice and the poet transformed into a bird and the song mm -hmm. being the poet's voice. And at one part in the section, she goes to Keats because kind of, you know, and Keats Philomel, which is Keats's Philomel, who is silent, and you know, melodies unheard are sweet. And I'm thinking about music that's internal, mm. and is that music? I don't know. I think it wouldn't upset me if it were. Like I think there's something lacking in something internal, and. It, it's not maybe a true, because it's an imagined song. It's an imagined voice. It's making any sense? Oh, interesting. I don't know. Because I think most of my poems are composed in my head. That's really interesting. Um, it's really hard for me to hear the story of Philomel and the Nightingale and the whole speech and the whole... And also the whole woundedness is song, right? It's really hard for me to hear that story and not think about Kierkegaard, who um, recites the story um, of the bull 
Oh gosh, I kind of want to say it's the Bull of Phalaris, but I think I have it wrong. It's about the king who, I think he's punishing a poet, but I could be wrong. And he puts the man into this bronze bull that he has cast. And mm. basically he's, he's like tortured in, in this bull. And the man's cries come out the mouth of the bull as beautiful song. And so it's really hard. Like every time I hear the Philomel story, I'm always thinking about this, this bronze bull with it. And it's like the poet song, right? That there is like the woundedness that becomes the poem, the woundedness that becomes the music. Also, frankly, it's like the torture. Also, it's infliction. Like it's all kinds of things. And I feel like that really like opens up. In some ways, it opens up the nightingale for me. But um, well, also that... You know, talking about women and women's communication, the story of what happens to her is woven. Mm-hmm. She weaves it mm-hmm. into a garment for her sister. Mm-hmm. And that's also in the Alice Oswald, which I'm forgetting what book it is, where the sister weaves to the sister. Maybe it's the same myth. But women, or like this, uh, what is the fairy tale where the she's she's barred from speaking and so she has to weave right so weaving as a poem weaving as a form of telling the story but not speaking aloud. an image yeah and is that a poem yeah. and that's a po- kind of poetry i've always gravitated toward mm. even though my favorite poets are very musical poets mm. and can you have yeah. an internal music that you hear yeah. because when you know there's some poets that i'll read all of their work fall in love with them and then I'll see them read 10 years later and they don't sound mm. like that's not how they sound you know but that is how they sound it's kind of interesting mm. yeah so there's like the internal music um and then there's also okay I know I know I want a, a Rockheiser kick and that's who I've been reading while we've been here at this house um but Rockheiser talks about how um painting is not a visual art it's an art you make with your hands and how music is also an art you make with your hands and how poetry is also an art you make with your hands. Mm. Um, and I'm so interested. I'm so interested in that because it's like something, it's like, it's not like we get so distracted by the material, right? We're like, Oh, this is visual. Oh, this mm-hmm. is auditory. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is spoken. But then when you think about how something is made, and that it's more bodily. And I think that the weaving gets back to this, right? Because it's like, it's not just, it's not just visual. Like woven something is something you do with your hands. It's tactile. Yeah. And the best poems come from that place. Like I've had poems start on a run and they start yeah. in my gut. Yeah. Or you wake up and you feel them in your throat stopped there. Mm-hmm. And you need language. Yeah. But the language is pulling the feeling out of your body. Yeah. We're all the stuck things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm focusing on the poetry of pain, but I think there's joy in the body. Although it does seem like joy is released from the body, whereas pain remains in the body. Yeah. I love I love the um the kind of trope of the nightingale because it's like it's like this sorrowful song, but it's also this sweet song and I believe in Keats it's it's also 
this uh, like this comfort. It is, and I don't know how like whether we even want to talk about like consolation or not, but that there's something like in the darkness. There's this song. Isn't it a death? I haven't read the night the keys are dead. It's been a death wish poem. It's been a long time. I was thinking of the prose mm. where the nightingales talked about. Um, but I would have to go look that up. I'm gonna change. Do it. Subjects a little. Yes. Will you read a poem from oh, what I want to read a poem. Okay. Thanks for asking. Um, since you were going to read a poem about nursing as well, that poem is beautiful, Jessica. Um, I am going to read a poem about my second child, and it's called Unwashed. My mother sends me unwashed eggs. I have forgotten what streaks an egg, the blood and shit of laying, even in straw, how hands must wash each egg, how unwashed eggs travel best, keep best, eggs laid as the hen and God intended. It's not only chickens that arrive this way. We are washed. We forget arriving covered in our mother's blood and vernix, sometimes our own meconium, a prenatal term for shit. My second child came five days early. He had vernix like a cream around him. He smelled like butter, like a bakery. I didn't want to wash him, not yet. Mm, I remember that poem. Aww. In fact, when I read that book, first time I read it through I just read it straight and then I went back I was thinking about the egg imagery mm. um, which I haven't seen before except in Macbeth when Macduff oh. when oh they kill gosh. Macduff's children oh my god that's one of my favorite scenes in like me too literature I had a <gasps> professor who called it the moral center of the play and really? I always God, oh my I love that you bring that up. A new egg. Yeah. Well, and all my pretty ones. All my pretty ones. And that's uh, sex in two, right? Yeah. 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 Ooh. I remember the vernix and the meconium. But you're not, you know, going back to, I'm changing from the egg idea a little bit, but just the idea of all of this knowledge that you're not given. Mm. And how, you, how surprising it is when you encounter yeah. vernix. Oh, yeah. And the fluids yeah. inside you? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And yet, we're, you know, you, you grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. And so it's like my students who will work on farms and grow up on farms. They're just more familiar with the body. Yeah. Yeah, right, because like when a chick hatches, it's all wet, right? And like you see you see the fluids, like you see those things. Did your, did your babies both have vernix? Um... May I ask that? My name? daughter, I think, had a little. My son, one of them did. Well, maybe it was just something my midwife talked about. And so, again, like, trying to be prepared in life, writing lists, reading books. Mm -hmm. I read so many birth books. Mm -hmm. My son was early. My daughter, mm -hmm. we thought she was two weeks late, but she was right on time. <laughs> she came out. That's how she does everything. I was just thinking that, like, having a baby on time is, like, having a poem one time like it's ridiculous to even talk about time like they both have their own times like the times 
you know, we have our own schedules. Cause, because my second child was five days early and so he was covered in furnix and, you know, whatever early means, quote unquote. Um, and my first was four days after their due date and no vernix at all, at all. And so that's why it was like such a surprise. And also the scent, like I just wasn't expecting it at all. I were, yeah, I remember them coming out. It was a long time ago for me, a little bit longer, but it was surprising. Yeah. It is like yeah. a poem. Yeah, it is. My daughter did everything <laughs> when she decided to talk when she was ready. Mm. She decided to leave when she was ready and she came out. And everyone said, oh, she's too late and you're screwing up and your midwife doesn't know what she's doing. Mm. And she came out and she was absolutely perfect wow. in every way. It's like she knew when to come out. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And the poem knows when to come out. It does. It does. I think there's a lot more, I don't know, it's interesting to me to go out poems that way. And books. Books are totally children. Well, there's a gestation period <laughs> for poems, too. Yeah, and for books. Like all the writing. This is what yeah. I tell my students when I used to teach high school English. How much writing gets done in your head. Yeah. Yeah, right, that we don't honor all the different forms of writing, but that's one of the ways... I think reading, too. I think reading is huge for writing. Well, I get a lot of students who would go to write, and they'd say, I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to say. Mm. And, you know, the students, their hands just tearing up the page, and it's because they've been thinking. Yes. So I always try to give my students a long... Mm -hmm. I mean, I teach French now, and they do some essays, but I try to give them a lot of thinking time. Yeah. And then you try to stimulate it along the way, so by the time they have to write... Mm. Yeah. It's like your poem is, you know... Yeah. You're working at it in your head. Although Yusuf Kamanyak, I heard him read a long time ago in San Antonio, and he said that he had composed the poems he read at that reading on the way to work, walking to work Amazing. at Princeton. Amazing. And I, I was like, I wanted to read my, I wanted to compose my poems aloud so much. That mm. I yeah. Wow. You have to have a lot of confidence in your voice to compose aloud. Yeah, think? I think, oh, I, I absolutely think so. In fact, I'm thinking of a poet, right? Cause, because you mentioned, wait, do you write when you run? No. You I mean, a lot of my poems that I love most are poems that just came. And then later I write and write and work at them. But I get a lot of poems, faculty meeting, running, running. <laughs> you know. I... Well, you get the line, you get the, you get whatever that is. It's not an idea. Well, it's not an idea for me, but whatever it is that you're getting. I was thinking of um, the poet Nicole Tong, and I was thinking of, um, Nicole's book, How to Prove a Theory, and Nicole's a big runner and um, often will compose while running. And um, use, I think uses an audit, like uses a recording device to do it while running, and that's not something I could ever do. I've, I've thought of lines while running, and I had to stop and, and like speak them into a microphone, and let me tell you, they're never 
that good. But yeah. it's like the poems I, in your dreams. And you wake <laughs> up and you write them down and you look at them later. Yeah. I definitely a lot of the poems in Pricking, the Esclarmon de Foix poems. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of those came from a run. Oh cool. And you know, this spooky. Mm. But my sense of place in those poems was very powerful, even though I, I actually have never been to that region mm -hmm. in the Languedoc, but it came from photographs. Yeah. And I, I felt the presence of the geographic space. Yeah. And running, I don't know, I felt sort of an embodiment of the poem. Mm -hmm. And then I would get home. And... Wow. That but this sense. book is more, because it gets closer to the personal, it's, it's more hand-to-paper and mm -hmm. hand to how did you compose what become like? Oh, I mean, you know, this, I mean, this ties it to a question I wanted to ask you, which is, A, I really wanted to know, well, I don't know if this is Snoopy. Like, I kind of, I wanted to know Snoop, where. Because I'll just lie, I'm Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know where, like, where you wrote your poem that you read. Um, in the eating ritual poem? Yes. I was just curious. And then I was also curious. I think a notebook in bed. Oh. I write in bed a lot. But Proust did. Wait, Proust didn't write Proust in bed. Proust wrote in bed. Oh. So I figure I can. I was about to say that was hot. So, I mean, I think it's. It's, it's very hot. <laughs> Actually, my first book, I started writing the most seriously when my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a lot of poems mm -hmm. while I was nursing. Mm hmm. So the nipples were present. Yeah. That's why I think iPhones are such a gift like to have something you can hold with one hand and write and I know TC Tolbert has talked about this on the commonplace podcast like being confined to bed after injury and being able to like write on the phone like that they, that you know it's accessibility to to be able to have something you can hold like with Did one you write hand. on the phone have you I can't oh, do it okay so okay I do sometimes I don't love the way it shapes my poems. It encourages short lines. You know, obviously, it's like it's the whole mm -hmm. your poem conforms to the canvas. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's what's been lovely about being in this house with you is that I haven't used my computer once except mm -hmm. for this recording. I have been writing in a legal size notebook, a notepad mm -hmm. and by hand. And I never do that usually. And it's so nice. And usually I find it kind of irritating, but it's really nice. Oh, one of my favorite um, questions that Rachel Zucker asks is, um, or she used to at least, like, when do you write? And that was a question. I, I think that's really tied to how you live and work. So I'm, I'm really curious. Like what time? Yeah, time like for me, I always, okay, cause, because it's so often relegated to marginal hours, especially when my children weren't old enough for school. And it had, like, it was always margin. So I was always listening for when a writer, particularly a woman or femme writer would say, or, you know, a primary caretaker, like, when they wrote. And it was often the marginal times. It was often, like, 11 p.m. at night. Yeah. yeah. Early morning. Summer. Transit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's very... Because of, yeah, you know, I get up at five. That's part of it, though, right? To go to work. Now, I don't write in the morning. Yeah. Because I have to be at work so early and I commute. I love morning brain. I think you, when my kids were younger, I would write in the evenings pretty. Um, I'm just going to get a computer plug really quick. Um, 
I would write in the mornings. Mm -hmm. Or no, sorry, I'm distracted by this. Um, I would write in the evenings. And now that my kids are teenagers, I just put a do not disturb note on my door, oh, which yeah. they think is great. And now they put don't do not disturb. <laughs> and then my daughter writes P.S. Do not disturb. Oh my god. Okay, but that's amazing because I literally took a um, indelible marker and wrote on my door. I wrote, shh, if this door is closed, like, please do not disturb or something. And it, like, worked for, like, I don't know, a week or something. And now they just open it. But I literally, I used a permanent marker on the outside of my office door in really big letters. Probably not helpful that I wrote in cursive, but it seemed very dramatic and necessary at the time. And you know, my kids do not. I don't know. We maybe we just have a very old school, or maybe I'm just a bitch. But <laughs> they view it a little bit. Mom's writing, always mom writing, and then you know. Oh, like respect. It's respect. I mean, there's a little bit of teasing in it, mm. you know, because my son would. You know, sometimes we have this conversation, and I'll say, "Well, what do you think about that?" And he'll give an opinion. I'm like, "Well." Maybe you need to look deeper. And he goes, oh, poetry. It's just his response to things, <laughs> poetry. Um, when we picked his college, his decisions for picking college went mm -hmm. up. We were very young. He wanted to know the school colors. And he said, I need purple. <laughs> and he said, is this school? I, I said, consider this school. Are there school colors purple? I said, I don't know. I don't care about school colors. He goes, he goes, you can you consider the look at the flying buttresses, look at the architecture. It's good for my poetry. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally why I chose well, okay, we like the pastors and our children went to preschool there, but the church we go to when it's not COVID. Um I picked it because it's so beautiful inside. It has flying buttresses, and that's important to me. It's really important to me. Like, my parents went to so many churches in, like, elementary schools that, like, met in school. It was, I hated it. You can't. My artistic soul needs something that I looks like a, God. I, yeah. I I, school architecture. I went, look at the library. What's the library like? Get that. <laughs> Gabriel, what's the library like? I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Important. Really yeah. important. <laughs> It's very important. Although, when I was an undergrad, the first time I went to the library, um, this student librarian hit on me, followed me back to my dorm, got off his shift, followed me back, freaked me out. So I never went back to the library. I did all of my papers in my room, and I used online databases for everything because I felt uncomfortable. Oh, so nice. that was a little... Unlooked for gift. It was only two years because I transferred there. Two years. But still. <laughs> I didn't work in the library anymore. No. That's horrible. I love it. That's like, you know, the roads you can't walk down or the house you can't go by. But the yeah. library. Yeah. It was unfortunate. <laughs> it didn't turn off my love of books. I never had anything bad happen to me in the Libraries are most beautiful. They were like my favorite place in community college because, I mean, I would just walk up and down and I'd see things I had never seen before. You know, like that freedom. Just Libraries are always, even, you know, teaching during the pandemic, they shut down our high school library, but the lights were on and the lights were on in one section. 
and I didn't have a place to eat lunch because some teachers were still eating around the table. <laughs> and so I would just go into the empty library hmm. during COVID mm-hmm. for like eight months, and I ate alone in the library. Wow. And I ate with the, the beautiful nonfiction books that are children's <laughs> books, which are the only nonfiction books that I truly love oh. because there's pictures, and it'll be like mythical symbols. Oh, that's from, right. I've heard from, you talk about that. Yeah. And I would just read these books. It was so peaceful. Even that's though it was so sad that no one was using the library wow. for months. Have you written about this? No. Mm. Mm. I think you should. Mm. <laughs> it's an essay or it's poems or it's something. I keep teaching. I, I haven't done a lot. There's actually some teaching poems in this book, but they're sort of hidden like I should be asking you about your forthcoming book Liar that's what I should be asking you is there is there a poem you want to read or is there something you want to speak about it's coming out what's your official date October 15th October 15th do you want to wrap up with a poem each first I want to hear what sign your book is oh it's a Libra Oh, Which is very strange. That for me. is interesting. Mine was in Aries. Mine were both. It is Scorpio and the Pisces for my mm. other two books. I feel like I need all my books to be water signs, mm. unless I get a Capricorn. But I don't. I mean, a Libra. I don't know. My youngest child is a Libra, and he is. The most fun. Oh my god. But when he gets tired, he becomes this Leo rising and it's a terror. My book is a fire sign, Aries. I just love oh, me a fire sign. Oh, and I should mention that Jessica Cueo is a Scorpio and I'm a Taurus because I think that's really important. I think that all workplaces should all right, this is probably like one of the more white things I've said, but I think that workplaces should post not posts, maybe, but like there should be internal memos about you know, people's signs. I, you know, before <laughs> I came on this trip, my husband said to me, um, "He's a cancer." He's never said this to me before. <laughs> um, I said, "I need to make food for Hannah. I'm going to make her some vichy soise and some salad soise. And I said, "That's going to be my prep day." And he oh said, "A prep day? Is this the whitest thing you've ever said?" <laughs> Which, uh, by the way, Jessica is an amazing cook, and everything was absolutely delicious. And we stopped and ate at a rest area, at a cement table, and Jessica even had a white and red check tablecloth. It was perfect. It was amazing. This is just to recommend to listeners that you hang out with poets as often as you can, particularly if they're amazing cooks. It's just smart. It's good self-love. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs> do, you um, want to, do you want to read another poem? Yeah. What should we read? Mother poems? Mm. Favorite poems? Hardest poem in the book? Opening poem? Least favorite poem? I'm not feeling my opening poem right mm. now. I think I'm going to read a brother poem from the book that I've never read. Ooh. Thinking about poems I've never said aloud. Oh, oh, I'll read a, I'll read a brother poem too if you want. Read a brother. And I don't think I've ever read it aloud. I love your brother poems. Oh, as you know, I've mentioned to you that I like them. 
further poems. Okay, beautiful poem. Okay. So this poem is Limbo. I draw an eye on my notebook, a swirl of ink. I'm not sure whose, but it sees me when my brother can't. He lives with us, but died somewhere back in childhood. He won't say how. His limbs move well enough to walk to school and back. I've seen his vacant eye, seen him in the hallway in his same sweatshirt. He won't pronounce my name. He skips the eye, he shuts his door. We once were close, walked hand in hand. Pre-language, we shared a bed. My notebook eye is more alive than he. Grain of paper, welt of ink. It sees more than a dead boy. And because he does alive things, like sleep and eat, I can't mourn. Oh, that's amazing. Read me your brother poem. Oh my God about the cat yeah I know I have I know I have more brother poems in Larks in my book I'm working on but um, I believe this one which I pulled up is for my brother Ansel who is just one of my best friends when I was younger he's very close. Um, and I was at William and Mary when he was at Virginia Tech in 2007. I was a senior. He would have been a little bit behind me. Um, and this is called on the anniversary of the mass shooting at Virginia Tech because, you know, he was there and I was trying to call him. Hmm. You were down the road in a barn a week and a day after Easter, when it began, when a boy who could have sat in my poetry class opened fire, kept firing until 32 fell, departed. You had to be like dad and granddad, gold motes of barn dust drifting like an axi halo around your face, filling your lungs. Rubber gloves pulled up to your shoulder, a hand on her hip bone. You artificially inseminate a cow. Life by course assignment, and the calf still gets called life. While the bodies on campus, we do not say killed, but tragedy. But brother, you were the kindest killer of chickens. Mm. Sharpened the dull axe complained it was not an electric knife. This has been Of Poetry Podcast with Han Vanderhart, Episode 1, featuring Jessica Coyo. To find out more about Jessica and her work, visit jessicacoyo.com or visit our website, ofpoetrypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening.